it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show coming to you live from Los Angeles, California. Greetings one and all. Glad you're here from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And if you can't tune in live for that whole time, we have a podcast that is free and always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your information about the show is right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, I'm on Kennedy tonight. Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern, part of her panel. Looking forward to that. We will see you there. You can also set your DVR. Here on the radio, we've got a lineup for you. It's a really strong one. Josh Holmes will join us later this hour. Brett Baer at the top of the next hour. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network. She will be our guest later on in our middle hour. And finally, taking up most of our final hour in all likelihood, will be an extended conversation with Dr. Deborah Burks, a name that we said a lot and invoked a lot on this program for the better part of a year when she was running the White House coronavirus response team. She's out with a new book. I have a number of questions to pose to her about various subjects related to the pandemic, looking back in retrospect and also looking forward. And for that reason, I am looking forward to the conversation with Dr. Deborah Burks coming up in our third and final hour today. Well, we begin today's show as you might imagine, with the huge political, constitutional, and legal news that leaked out via Politico last evening. My phone blew up when Politico published a story that reported that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to overturn and supplant the existing constitutional precedent, if you want to call it that, on abortion jurisprudence. Roe versus Wade and then Casey versus Planned Parenthood, 1973 and 1992, respectively. Those are the main cases that shaped what has been now for years the legal standards upon which states can and cannot shape their abortion policies. And conservatives and constitutionalists have been extremely critical of both of those decisions for as long as they've been on the books. And there's a March for Life every single year with tens of thousands of people gathering in D.C. and many thousands of others across the whole country in protest of the anniversary of the initial Roe decision back in the early 70s, which was 7-2 to at the time. Casey, which limited Roe versus Wade in some significant ways, was 5-4. to And based on this report, there is at least a 5-4 majority rather on this court to change, alter, and really uproot the existing status quo. And based on this report, and it's not just a rumor or someone who whispered to a reporter, hey, this is what's going to happen. They actually provided Politico. They furnished the news organization with 
the draft opinion that has been shared internally. And earlier today, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, confirmed the authenticity of that document. It is real. Now, he said it's not the final decision. It's not even necessarily the final vote count. Things can change up to the last minute. But the document itself is authentic. It has five justices concurring. It's written by Justice Alito, who's a very strong conservative. The three liberal justices in dissent, unsurprisingly. And the one sort of unclear vote of the nine is the chief. And there's speculation that Roberts might want to uphold the specific law that's at issue in the case, the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, a 15-week abortion ban, which is very mainstream by global standards. He seems positively inclined to let that law in Mississippi stand as constitutional, but it's unclear if he was willing to go as far as the other five conservatives to change Roe and abortion jurisprudence more broadly. And that might not matter, because if you have five votes, you have five votes. You don't need the chief with you. So he might try to split the decision a little bit and say that I agree with this, but I don't agree with that. We'll see. And again, this is not chiseled in stone yet. It has not been released, but it has been leaked. So this has set off shockwaves for all sorts of different reasons. And I wrote about my thoughts on this. I gave five I hope, substantive and thoughtful points at townhall.com this morning. You can look that piece up if you want. You can just Google my name, townhall.com, Supreme Court, something like that. You'll find it pretty easily. It's on the tip sheet at townhall.com. I want to start with the leak itself. And I know that there are some people who say that that is the least important element of the story because it's procedural. And it's about process and sort of internal precedent at the court and traditions that were violated. That doesn't matter nearly as much as the issue itself of abortion, which is a very sensitive one. It doesn't matter as much as the implications legally of what's happening. And I think those are fair points. But I would hasten to add that the leak and the process, in my view, really do matter quite a lot. Because we are a constitutional republic that relies on institutions and on norms and on the proper process to do things. And if we start to jettison those concepts as sort of ancillary or almost irrelevant and we only focus on outcomes, then we are hollowing out the substance of what makes our system work, right? We will be left with very little. If that stuff starts to crumble, then there's really not a lot holding the country together. And for the system to endure, we need institutions. We need processes that can be relied upon and counted upon regardless of the passions of the day. And so for this to happen, this unprecedented leak, and I know there have been a few examples of little dribs and drabs getting out shortly in advance of decisions through the years, nothing like this. On a massive case with an entire draft opinion or decision being leaked to the media, that is new. It is absolutely shocking. The Chief Justice says there will be a thorough investigation. And... The leaker here, or leakers, 
need to be punished severely. Now, the working theory is, the prevailing theory, is this is probably a clerk, a very leftist clerk of one of the leftist justices who's very angry, frustrated, fed up, and eager to undermine the institution as a form of punishment. Right? This is a punitive reaction because they're angry about what's going to happen as a result of this case, so they don't really care about damaging the institution. In fact, they might want to. Or they might feel like this is some way to influence potentially wavering justices to see, oh, there's going to be people in the streets and there are going to be big protests. There's going to be a big backlash in the media and in the culture, and maybe someone will get cold feet and shift. I think that that is unlikely. I think, in fact, doing what has been done here could backfire. I think it has really angered the chief justice. Maybe it might even push him into a 6-3 decision here on substance. I don't know. But the likelihood of someone who has voted in private in the justices' conference for this outcome to then say, oh, well, now it's been leaked in advance and some people predictably are very angry, never mind. I'm going to go back and maybe soften this a little bit. I think that for the integrity of the court, you're not going to see that from the justices, any of them. So I'm not exactly sure who did this. If it turns out, and there are some alternate theories that maybe a conservative did this, right? someone attached to or clerking for one of the conservatives for their own reasons, and timing-wise, I, I see some of those points. I think it's less plausible. No matter who did it, it is damaging, it is wrong, and it is a stunning breach of trust and protocol that has been jealously guarded for decades at the court. And Shannon Bream made the point last night on television, I was on with her on Fox News at night, there have now been a few Supreme Court-related leaks that are extremely uncharacteristic just in the last couple of months. Justice Breyer's retirement that was going to be announced a few days later, that leaked out earlier than he would have liked. So the cone of silence was violated there. There was also, you might remember, that little flare-up involving the controversy that was alleged about masks where apparently Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, wanted Gorsuch to wear a mask, and he had refused, and Roberts had at least allegedly or purportedly then intervened or asked Gorsuch to wear a mask, and Gorsuch didn't want to, and there was internal tension. That leak turned out to be false. All three justices who were supposed to have been involved in that came out in a very rare rebuke and said None about, nothing about this is true. It's not true. But that was still leaked out from the court into the bloodstream, I guess, to stir bad blood or something. That was very unusual. And then this one takes the cake. An entire draft opinion leaked to a media outlet and published in advance of a highly anticipated and controversial decision. It is a dark day for the institution. I worry about the incentives in our politics that whoever did this might actually be rewarded. And I'm not sure how you put the genie back in the bottle and prevent this from happening again. So that's the process side of this. But then there's the substance as well. And let me just say before I go to break, and I'll spell more of this out in the next couple of segments, just to put my cards on the table, I think that's fair. I think I owe you that. If you follow my work, you probably have a a sense of this already. I am pro-life. 
it's a, an issue that matters a lot to me. I view it as a fairness issue. I view it as a human rights issue. Now, I understand that there are certain challenges involving, you know, enforcement, especially in the first trimester, and could that be overly invasive? Uh, I get that, and, and I think that there are some fair points there. I have lots of friends who disagree with me on the issue, and I respect people who are pro-choice. I'm really, really able to respect people who, at least their opinion on this particular issue, who are fanatically pro-abortion, like all the way up through all of pregnancy, late term, force everyone to pay for it. I, I cannot abide that, and it turns my stomach. But that is not what most pro-choice people even believe in this country. And I think that there are good people, well-intentioned people, of good character, who can disagree. Because it is a cloudy, difficult, thorny issue that has moral implications, ethical implications, scientific implications, legal implications. And in some ways, my pro-life views are derived from a sense of right and wrong, black and white. But in other ways, not to use this cliche, but I will, there are gradients of gray when it comes to public policy on this question. And I think it's a very emotional one. I understand that a lot of people view it through the prism of women's rights and bodily autonomy, whereas pro-lifers view it as a human rights issue. And I think we talk past each other a lot. I try to be respectful, and I think we owe that to each other. And I think if we're going to move forward as a society, there will need to be listening and respect and sometimes compromise. Now, Roe versus Wade, in my view, was wrongly decided from the beginning. It was a non-existent constitutional so-called right that was conjured up by seven men wearing robes who were hoping to put a political issue to bed for the whole country, and that did not work. It has roiled the country, the controversy surrounding abortion, for five decades, ever since. Almost five decades. Roe versus Wade was bad law. Casey, decades later in the 90s, was better, but still bad law. It was still kind of policymaking under the guise of jurisprudence. And I think restoring this issue to the states and to the people's representatives is the right thing to do. That does not mean that abortion becomes illegal in this country. Very much not the case. A lot of people believe that because there's been a decades-long misinformation campaign by the left and the media to, to sort of convince people that that's the case. Roe goes away, which means abortion goes away. No, there'll be a patchwork of different standards in different states. That is a crucially important point to make here. But I think this is the appropriate decision if, in fact, this is what ends up happening, whatever the count ends up being, 5 to 4, 6 to 3. But I also understand why there would be a lot of people unnerved by this. And I think those of us who are pro-life need to understand that and listen to that. I have a lot more to say. We will get into more of that as soon as we return. Quick break as we get started today here on The Guy Benson Show from L.A. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. 
I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Continuing with some of my thoughts here on the Supreme Court, abortion, this leak. A lot of people are already looking to the politics of this. I'd point out that the media, we know that they're quite biased. In some ways, even corrupt, I would say, in a lot of issues. That is particularly true on abortion. It is one of the issues on which they are most aggressively and unapologetically and hopelessly biased. They are, in many cases, just activists. And they don't really make any bones about it. They don't understand about half of America and why people feel differently. They're not really interested in that. And the coverage that we're already seeing, I think, reflects that unfortunate reality. And it's just sort of like, be aware of that. Consider their coverage accordingly. I'm putting my arguments out in the open, right? On my sleeve, where I'm coming from, they sort of pretend to be arbiters of facts and just bringing information when on certain things they cannot help themselves but try to tip the scales and move public opinion. That is exactly what they're doing here. And frankly, public opinion is very complicated on abortion in ways that people on both sides of the argument, real activists, don't often like to admit. So just, you know, another warning, not that many of you need one, when you're considering the way that this is portrayed today and in the coming days in the media. I think that's just a worthwhile reminder here. Then there's the question about the midterm elections. Will this really change things? Will this ignite the Democratic base? They've been listless and demoralized. This could change things. Maybe some moderates who are drifting back towards Republicans might be scared off by this and move back toward the Democrats. That's possible in some places. I think that it's a mixed bag, though. If the Supreme Court didn't do something like this, a lot of conservatives and pro-lifers and social conservatives who have for years fought for this exact moment, if it didn't happen when the court had an opportunity, they might throw up their hands and say, why do we even bother? You'd have a backlash on the right. There will be people energized on the right side of things about this. And different demographics believe different things. So what could hurt Republicans in some places could help them elsewhere. And I also think that there are so many huge issues at play in the country and in the world right now. Economic concerns, inflation, you know, border policy and the crisis down there, crime. There's a lot of things going into what is likely to be a wave election. And this is just one issue. That is a top issue for some people, but for many Americans, they have mixed emotions. So I think that analysis about this being a huge game changer might be wish casting and a bit oversold. More right after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. We're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show from L.A. today and also again tomorrow. Just laying out a few more of my thoughts on this issue. It's a big one, so I want to take some time and have some breathing room here with all of you before we get to some of our guests. We've got a great lineup coming up. First, there's this. 
and I'll expand on this just a little bit. People ask me why I'm pro-life. It's because scientifically, I think it's indisputable that human life begins at conception. That's a scientific point. Now, ethically, morally, legally, what does that mean? When is that life worthy of legal protection? I understand that that is thorny and complicated. But the bright line, scientifically, for me, is conception. And it seems like if you're trying to draw other lines, certainly from a moral standpoint, it can be arbitrary. And so that's generally why I am pro-life. I also believe, I was talking earlier about sort of viewing it through the prism of human rights. That's a separate person. Now, when does that individual become a legally protectable separate person? That is really the crux of our debate. Because people say, well, you know, women say, my body, my choice. And I agree on almost every subject You're entitled to bodily autonomy. However, at some point, there is another body involved. Another unique human life with its own unique DNA makeup. A separate heartbeat. A separate human entity that can feel pain at a certain stage of a pregnancy. Maybe around 20 weeks. A little more than halfway through the pregnancy. Right at, at some stage, this is where the politics and the legal aspects come in, that separate person, it's just not as easy to say, well, this is just a personal decision and a bodily decision that one makes for themselves. There's another person involved. And when that person crosses some threshold into legally protectable, a life that is worthy of protection under the law, that truly is the core of the debate. And I see various arguments that are some more compelling than others on that very question. I think people who say, well, the moment that matters is birth. I I think that that's just barbaric. And even under the current regime, Roe and then Casey, there was an understanding that late-term abortion and elective abortion after a certain point was grotesque and not something that's, you know, some super precedent enshrined in our founding documents. Even a lot of pro-abortion rights jurists were willing to concede those points over the years. So there's that. And I also believe, one more point on this, the wantedness of a life, if you will, the wantedness of a child does not determine the humanity of that child. Right? If we celebrate someone who announces her pregnancy in the third month, let's say, We're pregnant. It's a boy. And there's a party and a shower and that kind of thing. Because that child is wanted, everyone accepts that that's a baby. But if that child is not wanted, that same human life, that same entity at the same stage of development is considered what? Something other? Something less? How is that fair? How is that reasonable? I don't think it's a a moral or ethical thing to say that someone's degree of being wanted by other people determines the personhood of that person and the value of that life. That's something that I can't embrace. It's one of the reasons why I'm pro-life. And again, I will repeat, I understand that how you manifest these values into law 
in a way that is equitable and enforceable is tricky, which is why sometimes I am more open to compromise than other pro-lifers. And some people say, well, you're not really fully pro-life if that's what you believe. Okay, I, I also understand that we live in a pluralistic society with a lot of people who believe a lot of different things. And if we're going to get along and have a society, sometimes we have to have these conversations and we can't just completely go into our corners. So that's the way that I think about these things. I would add, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, public opinion is convoluted, complex, and sometimes contradictory on these questions. You'll see a lot of polls showing that people don't want Roe versus Wade overturned, and I'm sure the media will be hyping those results in the coming days and weeks. But other polls have also showed simultaneously that people don't believe that abortions in the second, third trimester in particular are almost ever acceptable and can be very heavily regulated. And people are very much in favor of that. Large majorities, large majorities of women believe that. And on the broader question of abortion, it's about split down the middle. So there are certain polling data points that are really hard to square with others on this issue set. And so when you see Roe versus Wade get supplanted, if that is in fact what's going to happen, as would appear to be the case here, based on the Supreme Court's draft opinion that has been confirmed as authentic by the Chief Justice, you will have some states that will go radically permissive on abortion. We already have those laws on the books in a lot of places. Colorado just passed one. Oregon passed one a few years ago. I view these laws as inhumane and appalling like legal abortion all the way to the moment of birth for any reason, paid for by tax dollars. I mean, it's far, far, far beyond the mainstream of public opinion if you look at any of the polling. Unfortunately, that's the position that a lot of people in the media and a lot of elected Democrats currently take. It is a far cry from safe, legal, rare, moderate, reasonable, or even aligning with what Roe and Casey have established as the previous precedent. That is much, much more extreme, what they're pushing now. You'll have other states that will go very restrictive, where most abortions will become illegal, with very few exceptions. Then other states are going to find somewhere in the middle, which is that hazy area where a lot of Americans find themselves, 12-week bans, 15-week bans, which are very mainstream, In the Western world, we in America are one of only seven nations on earth that allow elective abortions at 20 weeks and in some cases beyond 20 weeks. Only seven countries do that, including China and North Korea. We're one of them. That's not a good place. And because of Roe and Casey. We couldn't really address that through our elected representatives. So that's why I think this development at the Supreme Court, if it appears to be going the way that it is, is a positive development for our country on these issues. And the last point I'll make before we break and get to our first guest, sort of circling back to something that I said earlier, people of good faith have different opinions on this. Pro-lifers have worked and dreamed of and prayed for this day for a very long time. They have every right, if this decision does come down this way, to celebrate and feel a sense of relief and gratitude, even elation. A lot of lives will be saved. But there's also got to be some trepidation here, some humility here, 
some compassion and empathy on the part of pro-lifers. I think that there will need to be compromises. Because now it does come out to states and elected representatives. And there's a lot of people who are scared and angry and upset. And just to spike the football or rub their faces in it and gloat, that is not what is needed if Roe versus Wade goes. In fact, it's extremely counterproductive because our discussions about abortion move into the realm more than ever because of this, what appears to be coming into the realm of winning hearts and minds and persuasion. And that's going to require pro-lifers to be sensitive and to listen and to be kind. So we can be glad there can be celebrations. People can move forward courageously and with conviction, but also with empathy and with humility. Because I think that's what it's going to take to start to pull some people or at least have conversations with people who are hesitant, who are ambivalent, who aren't sure, or even are hostile. So that's just my counsel to people who might be on my side, generally speaking, on this issue. And with that, I'll break, come back with Josh Holmes, still to come, Brett Baer later on in the program, Dr. Deborah Burks, and more. It's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Joining us now is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast, which we recommend here. Also a longtime aide in multiple capacities to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Josh, welcome back to the show. Hey, Guy. Good to be here. I want to start quickly with the news of the day. I just spent the first three segments of the show talking about the Supreme Court and abortion Just one political question for you. I see that the Democrats are rushing out to the microphones saying now we need to hold votes to enshrine and codify Roe in law. And what they're proposing actually is legislation that goes far beyond what Roe and Casey actually allow and would go much further than that in a much more radical way. Abortion on demand, paid for by taxpayers for nine months. That is not where the American people are really at all on this issue outside of democratic politics, base politics and the media. And I just wonder, you know, there might be some pitfalls here for Republicans. Are Democrats now trying to say, let's codify Roe, which will pull better than their actual beliefs on this issue, which are, I would say, anathema even to many pro-choice people. Could they, as they often do, overplay their hand politically here because they've got this feedback loop that distorts reality and where the American people really are on these questions? Yeah, it's really well said. That's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the journey that most Democrats have taken from even like the 1990s to today, it's, it's sort of jarring, right? I mean, you remember the old Democratic Leadership Council days and Bill Clinton's first term when abortion was supposed to be safe, legal, and more importantly, rare, right? That was the Democratic talking point. And now today, you've seen not just sort of the fringes, but basically your rank-and-file Democratic lawmakers oppose any restriction whatsoever on abortion, right? I mean, right up until the, till, till birth, essentially. That is just so far outside the mainstream of, of, of American sentiment that, yeah, they're on the outside looking in on it. And, and further, I think it's also really jarring at a time of like 8.5% inflation, people are struggling to pay bills, crime rampant in streets 
to see what a uh, uh, emphasis that Democrats have on this specific issue. It's basically the galvanizing force behind the entirety of today's Democratic Party. And I think if you were to ask the average sort of swing voter, right, uh, where they, they stand on all these sets of issues, I think abortion is pretty low on the list. Now, you yeah. know, granted, Republicans and, and, and Democrats have had extremely convicted views on this from the very beginning, and that's to be accepted at some level. But Democrats have pushed the Overton window entirely off the left-hand side of the map. Well, yeah, and, and to that point, Josh, if – and I might expand on this. I, I want to think it through more, but I, I tweeted a bit about this earlier. If the Democrats actually wanted to introduce legislation that would, let's say, codify Roe, they would introduce a bill – that would say abortion is broadly legal for the first, let's say, 12 or 15 weeks of pregnancy, and then it can be very heavily regulated, and that's the new federal law. And that would be much closer to something that would fit the bill of codifying Roe. They would never introduce a bill like that because they would have a revolt from their base. That would be considered a conservative bill based on what they at least say they believe and what their new stance is. Codifying Roe is almost like you know a Republican bill in some ways at this point, which is why I don't think they'll even come close to doing something like that. They'll use those words and then backfill the details with stuff that if people looked under the hood, they would just say absolutely not. You know, I'm I'm pro life, I'm pro choice. I'm not I'm not going there. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, look, the whole conversation is nonsense, right? Because when they talk about introducing a bill to codify Roe, what they mean is eliminating the filibuster. Right. Something that they only have 48 votes to do and then codifying Roe, which they're shy of 50 on itself. Right. So, I mean, this, this is basically yet, yet again another talking point. To this well, and, and by the way, to that point, because they say some of them say we must eliminate the filibuster and don't worry, that will never backfire on us, even though it has backfired <laughs> yeah, on them right. very badly. I mean, look at the Supreme Court right now. Right. That that's part of it. If Republicans win back majorities and you get a Republican president, you could pass laws like, let's say, the Mississippi law or the Florida law nationally if there's no filibuster anymore. So it's like another cautionary tale, but it seems like lessons are never learned. I do want to shift, though, Josh, to some politics. It's primary day in Ohio, uh, quite a, shall we say, rambunctious GOP primary for the Senate out there. I think I'm putting that nicely. Um, and finally, it'll be put out of its misery tonight. There will be a nominee. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Trump's behind J.D. Vance, although he called him J.D. Mandel the other day. There's a, sort of a more moderate guy who seems to be surging toward the end. What do you think's going to happen there? What are the implications in Ohio? Yeah, I mean, it couldn't end any other way than to have Trump mispronounce the name of his nominee as J.D. Mandel, fusing the top two candidates, right? I mean, right. this has been a circus from beginning to end. It's been the best soap opera in politics, and mercifully, it is coming to an end. I mean, Vance clearly peaked at the right time here in the last week to 10 days with the endorsement and, you know, some strong debate performances and everything else. Mandel has run one or two since the very beginning, and he's basically the only candidate that's done that. The other four have had peaks and valleys where, where other people have challenged it. I, I think in all likelihood, uh, J.D. probably wins tonight. But, you know, you mentioned uh, this other candidate, Dolan, who, you know, emerged fairly late. And the question there is whether or not uh, he ultimately can consolidate that sort of not necessarily anti-Trump uh, vote, but a, but a Trump vote skeptical. that – Yeah, well, that, that encompasses more than, you know – 
2020, essentially, right? Uh, right. People will want to want a candidate speaking more specifically to economic issues and the like. And so, I, look, I think it's too little, too late to probably get there. He would require, you know, two or three other candidates to basically go from. 10 or 12 to zero in order. Yeah, to and he's sort of he's running out of real estate and running out of time because the election is literally now. It's happening right now. We'll probably know tonight on the other side of the ballot are the Democrats. They've had their nominee basically, you know, picked and gift wrapped for a long time. Congressman Tim Ryan, he's going to be extremely well funded. He's sort of talking the game of a moderate blue collar Democrat in Ohio. He's got a new ad out where he's actually criticizing his own party. He's like running against his own party in the ad. Here's the problem with that, Josh. It might make sense to try to play that game from his perspective in a place that Trump won by eight or nine points twice. But Tim Ryan, his voting record in Congress under this president, he has voted 100 percent with Joe Biden. So he can pretend that he's some sort of, you know, maverick and moderate. His voting record says he is a Biden, Harris, Pelosi rubber stamp. And I think that's the way the Republicans have to run against him in Ohio. 30 seconds, Josh. Yeah, no question about it. And look, it's not impossible for Democrats to win in Ohio. They have a sitting Senator Sherrod Brown. The problem is is that if you were going to run either as a Republican or a Democrat, you better do so authentically in Ohio because these voters – are amongst the most astute in the country. They're always the focal point of presidential elections. They're certainly not going to get wool pulled over their eyes. And somebody like Ryan, who's just reinventing himself whole cloth just months before a general election. And it's a really rough cycle for his party in general, just layer on top of the rest of it. Josh Holmes, up on a break here, founding partner at Calvary LLC. Check out the Ruthless podcast. Josh, thank you. Brett Bayer, straight ahead. Guy Benson Show, don't go anywhere. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We are coming to you live from L.A., just near Hollywood. Thank you very much for tuning in out here on the West Coast tomorrow as well. And then headed home. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website here at the program where you can get our podcast every single day free of charge on demand. We recommend if you can to listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. But sometimes you're busy, you're traveling, you're at work, and you can't listen to the whole thing. And that's why the podcast is free and always available at your fingertips 365 because it also includes bonus Benson on the weekends. Fox News alert as we begin this middle of three hours. The Dow ends the day in the green, not by a lot, but a gain. Up 67 points, closing at 33,128. One thing in our last hour, we were chatting with Josh Holmes in that last segment, and we just ran out of time because we were covering the major story of the day, the Supreme Court leak, The abortion decision that appears to be forthcoming that would very much change at least the legal status quo on a national basis. I didn't get to a few updates when it comes to the House of Representatives. Talked about that Ohio race, which I think is very interesting on the Senate side. But it really does feel like the writing is on the wall for the Democrats in the House, which is why you're starting to see more Democrats head for the exits. 
And I saw some speculation when redistricting didn't really go the way the Democrats were hoping for in Florida, and then their very heavily gerrymandered map was thrown out in New York. People were wondering, will more Democrats start to say, you know what, I'm going to look for a new job, and that has happened just in the last few days. Congressman from Hawaii has announced he's going to be out, and a swing district Democrat from New York is now gone to pursue other political endeavors. So I believe that is now the 32nd and 33rd House Democrats saying we're out. Crying uncle, not interested in being a part of what might be coming next. We'll see what happens in November. Well, joining us now is our colleague here at Fox News. He is the anchor of Special Report every night at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. He's also chief political anchor here at Fox. You can listen to his podcast, Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. You can read his multiple best-selling books. Most recently... It's to rescue the republic. Brett Bayer is with us. Brett, great to have you back. Hey, guy. Well, there's a lot to unpack here in our politics the last you know, 12, 18 hours uh, with the Internet set ablaze by this Politico bombshell, this leak from the Supreme Court, the likes of which we've really never seen on this scale or level before, and just so many different angles to take to this story. I just wonder what some of your big takeaways are here as we're watching the reaction pour in from all sides. I think one of the takeaways is is just the dichotomy of how the two parties are reacting to this, and it's pretty cut and dry. I mean, Senator Schumer out on the floor and all of the Democratic senators talking about the substance of what's in this draft opinion uh, as if it's already happened and uh, saying how they're going to fight Roe v. Wade being overturned, although it has not happened as of yet. Uh, Republicans saying that today's news should be about the leak and how this happens, why it happens, what's the motivation for it, what's the investigation that's going to go on, uh, because it it risks and threatens the legitimacy of the court. And um, you're right, it has not happened like this. If there were, if there was any place in Washington that was leak-less. Uh, it was the U.S. Supreme Court. So this is a big, big breach. And, you know, and then you've got all the pundits speculating about why this happens. Is it some, you know, liberal clerk or someone in the system who needed to get this out before, you know, to, to sound the alarm and maybe move a vote back? Uh, is it a conservative clerk? Uh, and that speculation has been out there that um, – is worried that the chief justice is going to water down and try to pull one of these votes back and uh, now by doing this locks those votes in and moves forward. You know, there's all kinds of palace intrigue, but the bottom line is that it's earth-shattering as far as the newsworthy value of it, and we don't know the impact of the political fallout uh, come November. Yeah, I mean, it could be significant. It might be less significant because there's a lot of other issues out there, and if the Democrats are going to... Exactly. I mean, it's it's come out even farther removed from the election, right? This was maybe going to come out in June as originally scheduled. Now there's a few more weeks for this to sort of sink in. People might finally start to understand that Roe versus Wade being overturned does not mean abortion is illegal 
everywhere in America immediately, uh, and and in most places it will never become completely illegal. Um, and I think that's been sort of a, a PR campaign for a long time to make those things sound synonymous, which isn't true. You're also seeing the Democrats immediately coming out saying, well, their solution to this is let's pass legislation that makes abortion legal for the entire pregnancy up to the moment of birth, paid for by taxpayers. And that's not where voters are either at all on these issues. So I, I think it's kind of complicated and it's not perfectly predictable about what the next you know, dominoes might be. But I, I will just say this, Brett, all the various theories about who leaked it, I find the lefty clerk theory probably most plausible. The other side, it, it's in, entirely possible. I just think no matter who did the leaking, even if it turns out to be the top clerk to my favorite justice, uh, I think it's a horrible and dangerous thing. Because it just feels like our institutions are under attack. We had a lot of people on the left very worried about norms and institutions and keeping those intact under the previous administration and constantly worrying about Trump's impact on those things. And it just strikes me that as soon as they don't get their way on certain big things, they come straight forward with a blowtorch to these institutions, trying to kill the filibuster, blow up the Senate, get rid of the Electoral College, you know, pack the court. It it almost strikes me as if some of the hand-wringing about norms and institutions might have been less than totally authentic and maybe a little bit disingenuous and situational. Is that possible, Brett? Yeah. Listen, you had Senator McConnell mentioning a lot of this in his uh, press conference after speaking on the floor and saying, remember when Senator Schumer was on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court in what McConnell described as a threat to specific justices, and Senator Whitehouse and others have written amicus briefs with similar, you know, threats about the Supreme Court and, you know, the efforts to pack the court or add justices um, to undermine somewhat of the what has been that institution. That was McConnell's point um, in, in that presentation. I do think that uh, it's it's earth shattering, but we have to just see the political impact. The conventional wisdom is it does fire up Democrats, and it, it would in a really bad Democratic year uh, maybe assuage some of those seats, maybe uh, some independents uh, who are really want to vote on abortion as an issue, and it, it's fairly small. I mean it was down to about the ninth or tenth issue in the latest polling from Gallup. Um, but if if it is, it generates excitement in that vote, then maybe it affects some races on the edges. But for the most part, people are deciding elections based on the economy, how they feel, inflation, immigration, and um, and crime. Yep, and there'll be some highly motivated single-issue voters on abortion on the other side, very much as well. And it could be, you know, a suburban seat in Pennsylvania could look a lot different than a border district in Texas. That's heavily Hispanic on on abortion questions. So I called it a mixed bag in all likelihood in the last hour. I think that's likely true, but it might slant one way or another. I guess we'll find out in November. Meanwhile, Brett Baer, we were talking with Josh Holmes in the last hour. I want to pick your brain on this. It's the Ohio Senate primary today, or all the primaries in Ohio today, but the one that is being most carefully looked at and tracked is the Senate primary on the Republican side. 
and Republicans, I guess at this point, are expecting J.D. Vance to be the front runner and likely to win. He got the endorsement, the coveted endorsement of Donald Trump sort of late in the game. He surged into first place. But there are absolutely at least one or two other guys in striking distance who could conceivably patch together a coalition. You don't really need a big percentage to win in a primary this crowded. We'll know that answer in a few hours. Trump has put his prestige and his name and his backing on the line in some really high-profile primary endorsements that will come to a head this month. Tonight in Ohio with J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz in that Senate race in Pennsylvania, uh, David Perdue in the gubernatorial race down in Georgia. And it looks like, you know, some of these endorsements are kind of shaky, right? Mo Brooks, he had to throw overboard and unendorse uh, down in, in Alabama. I just wonder how you're thinking about the context of these primary races, the Trump effect, and is the media too focused on that, like waiting to write a story about Trump you know, losing influence, or is there something there? No, I think there is something there, and um, you know, you can't look at one race as the canary in the coal mine, but you could look at four races, let's say, uh, and have a sense about the former president's juice uh, to get candidates across the finish line. I think Ohio will be one of those, and it'll be interesting. I think the Vance campaign was a little uh, disconcerted and and upset that uh, in the closing days that the former president said J.D. Mandel is his yeah. uh, endorsement, and uh, obviously. Obviously, it's J.D. Vance, but you use the last name of the closest opponent, and then Josh Mandel tweets out, thanks, Mr. President, I appreciate the late endorsement. So um, I don't think that helped in the in the game uh, of politics. But well, listen, Brett, it, just, just so you know, just from my perspective, my money tonight is on J. Dolan Mandel. I think he's got this thing in the bag. <laughs> yeah, he's got it. He'll he'll split the ticket. Um, <laughs> I watch Dolan. I think that he's uh, is surging, and you know the late polls. Whenever you see a big move in the final days, that's usually someone who's getting the late voters, the late deciders. And so I would watch watch him. He was only a few points back in in our poll and another poll. Um, so what does it say? It says that um, that the power of the former president uh, on the endorsement front will be tested, and he knows that. And does it affect his decision whether to run in 2024? I don't know, but um, it is a signal, and it's one that we should watch. At the top of this hour, I mentioned another Democrat heading into retirement, at least in the House, Congressman Delgado from New York. I think that what happened with the map that the Democrats tried to draw in New York, it got tossed out as unconstitutional. It's pretty flagrant in the Empire State. That sent him packing. We saw a Democratic congressman from Hawaii saying, you know what, I'm going to pursue uh, other other ideas and other position in, in, uh, in Hawaii moving forward. I mean, when you are now in the dozens of retiring congressmen from one party, it really does – perhaps give an even better sense of where that party believes their standing is than any poll really could. And and maybe this is all, you know, it feeds on itself. And the worse the polls get, the lower the morale gets, and it kind of spirals. But you'd imagine that members have special insight into the environment on the ground, nationally, in their districts. They're looking at a lot of private data. And the fact that you've got upwards of three dozen House Democrats saying, you know, maybe the minority doesn't sound so fun. Uh, That seems 
ever more significant the closer we get to November. No, definitely. And once you get above 30 uh, members who are retiring or saying they want to spend more time with their family, they <laughs> see the writing on the wall. And I think we're almost up to 40, actually, if you look at all the numbers. Um, so now the prognosticators are looking at the midterms and saying uh, that the over-under is about 30 pickups for Republicans. It was 35. I think today's news about Roe v. Wade and how that issue plays maybe is a plus or minus five. So you're looking at 30 seats, right? They need to pick up five for control. In the Senate, the you know the thought is like a plus two Republican pickup, but that's far less certain, and it all depends on who the candidates are yes. uh, in these various races. Yeah, candidates still do matter. I mean, sometimes waves grow so tall that candidates almost don't matter as much anymore. I remember, for example, back in 2010 when the Republicans gained 63 seats in the House that year, the chairman I was living in Chicago at the time, the chairman of the Illinois Republican Party, came out the next day with a big smile on his face or the, you know, the week after the election, and he proudly told the media that Republicans in Illinois had won five of their four targeted races in the state because one of them they didn't even think was on the board, and down it went, right? That domino fell. So sometimes the wave is so big it, it wipes people away who are quality candidates and sweeps in people who may not be high-quality candidates. But a lot of the time, even when things are stacked in a certain direction, candidates do matter, which is why there's so much attention being paid to these primaries, as Brett was just explaining. Brett, quickly, what do you have on special report tonight? Well, we'll dive into this, uh, this issue about Roe v. Wade, uh, the substance of it, the leak, and uh, the politics of it. I've got a couple of pollsters, Kellyanne Conway and Doug Schoen. I've got the Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchison, so it'll be a packed show. And I think, um, you know, the key thing about the midterms is that it matters who shows up to vote. So you could talk about waves all day long, but Republicans actually have to go uh, and actually cast ballots if there's going to be a wave. Otherwise, it'll be a ripple. Brett Bayer, chief political anchor at Fox News. Special report every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Pick up a copy of To Rescue the Republic while you're at it. Or listen to the podcast, Brett Bayer's all-star panel at foxnewspodcast.com. Brett, always appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. See you. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Here's a story that has been, I think, undercovered. Here's the headline for FoxNews.com. Biden FEC pick claimed Georgia voting machines, quote, switched votes from Abrams to Kemp in 2018. The FEC is the governing body that regulates American elections. And President Biden has nominated someone to sit on the FEC who is a conspiratorial election truther. Now, I know we saw a lot in the press about Republicans endorsing or nominating some election truthers in their own right in places like Michigan and Colorado. And there was a lot of consternation about that. And I think that's fair, right? If you're going to have people in positions of power, especially involved in elections, and they don't actually believe in the legitimacy of legitimate elections because of, you know, partisan reasons or what have you, that is a cause for concern. And I think that the Republicans would do well to stay away from that sort of thing and try to fight forward in the future and and win the next election rather than 
relitigating the last one and sort of regurgitating certain unproven and baseless conspiracies. But here we have Biden trying to put a woman on the FEC nationally overseeing our elections who signed on to some crazy town conspiracy theories about the 2018 governor election down in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams lost by like 55,000 votes to Governor Brian Kemp. She refused to concede. She yelled about suppression and all this stuff. And you had Hillary Clinton saying that she really won and Joe Biden pretending like she really won. And all that conspiratorial stuff on the left was celebrated and rewarded. And someone who indulged it and engaged in it is now Biden's pick to the FEC. I feel like there are some double standards at play, especially in the press and the way this is covering. Have you not heard about this threat to our democracy? Oh, how curious. The Guy Benson Show continues. Carrie Severino with me after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're at the midway point on today's show. It's the Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is available free of charge each and every day. That's on demand after the show is over shortly after 6 p.m. Eastern. Joining me now is Carrie Severino, the president of the Judicial Crisis Network and former clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And Carrie, it's good to have you back on the show. Welcome. Great to be here, Guy. I'd like to start with the process questions here involving the leak that went to Politico last evening and just dropped like a bomb on our politics There's a lot of speculation and conjecture out there about who is responsible for the leak. There are various theories floating around. I know the court is going to work very hard to identify the person or persons responsible for it. Do you have a working theory, and what do you think about the leak? How can you put it into context for people who may not be familiar with the inner workings of the court, how truly shocking and hugely unusual this is? Uh, Yeah, so – you know, my working my working assumption is, I think, most people's working assumption, which is that this is probably a leak by a liberal justice's clerk it, that was an attempt to uh, maybe foment a protest and opposition that could stave off uh, this decision uh, that 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 a majority of the court was in agreement with. Um, I, I assume that sim- largely because the Supreme Court holds its decisions in very close confidence. There is a small, small universe of people who have access to these. It's really just the justices, their opinions. I mean, sure, there's always a possibility that some other staff member somewhere at the court could, you know, sneak in and and, and get access to these, but that would be really outrageous. Um, And frankly, the idea that a clerk would leak this is outrageous. I can't think of another example in American history where a full draft opinion was leaked. There are maybe a handful of cases people have now dug up and pointed to, including Roe versus Wade itself, where, where someone might have tipped someone off shortly before a decision was announced, hey, this is the direction the decision is going to go. Never something as explicit as an opinion. Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, even just the idea of uh, when you're talking with people who had clerked the court, people won't even tell you which cases they were working on uh, within chambers, let alone details like this. So this is really an outrageous breach of confidence. I, I view it as an attack on the integrity of the court, because I think this was an attempt to bully and intimidate the justices uh, by putting this out there. And so I think that's part of the reason Chief Justice Roberts is so outraged and so committed to finding out 
and uh, and bringing to justice one way or the other uh, the person who who did this. It puts all of the court at at, at personal risk. It also um, just really uh, makes the court into much more of a politicized body uh, than than it it should be in this case. I think we need to take the temperature down in the court politics, not ramp it up. So I guess the next question would be, is this a miscalculation? If you're right about the type of person who did this, you don't know the exact person, but you sort of have narrowed it down in your opinion to the likeliest very small universe of people. If you're right, and that's who it is, one of them or more than one of them, will this actually work? To me, it seems like as a calculation, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right? You're kind of – doing a slow roll of this announcement that would spread out over time. It might bake in more the impact of the decision coming out a month or two from now would be lessened. We'd be, we're currently farther out from the election. Uh, it seems like maybe justices who might have been in the privacy of chambers, maybe even for a moment reconsidering their opinion, now that this has been forced out into the open in this very underhanded way and with the I think, fairly obvious attempt of trying to bully people. I just wonder if justices on the court might dig in and say, well, now I'm absolutely doubling and tripling down on my decision because I'm not going to allow that sort of thing to stand. I just wonder if you think, if your theory is correct, did they do something actually counterproductive for their own interests here? Uh, yeah, and that's one of the big mysteries of this process. I, I agree. I think that is going to uh, have – uh, not not the effect intended if that if that was the intent um, I, I guess it strikes me as perhaps just a desperation move, a Hail Mary pass where they're just like hey um, the decision uh, if, if nothing else changes the decision's coming down and Roe is going to be overturned or just Maybe a tantrum right they might say well, they're like I, I don't even mm-hmm. think this is going to work and it doesn't need to work I just want to undermine the institution from within as punishment for doing something that I don't like I mean that is very much what this could be and that's what worries me the most because, you know, Carrie, you were a clerk, as I mentioned, in your open uh, under Justice Thomas. I read a quote from Justice Scalia who was addressing clerks years ago where he told them, if you ever violate the strict confidence that we believe in here and that we operate under here, I will personally do everything that I can to ruin your career. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what Scalia said. This person, if they're found – their legal career might be in jeopardy. They might not be able to continue on whatever track they had in mind. But I feel like the incentives of our politics these days would suggest that that person will become famous and potentially celebrated. And I could imagine cable news deals and book deals and uh, certain law firms or legal organizations lining up to pay them a lot of money to come work for them as some sort of a folk hero. I just feel like our incentive structure is so toxic right now in our politics. This kind of thing, whether it's right or left, uh, will be rewarded by certain actors on the right or the left, depending on you know the day or the circumstances. How can the Supreme Court guard against something like this happening again if someone doesn't really feel like the consequences are that dire for doing something that even, let's say, all nine justices are horrified by. Uh, yeah, I fear you're right. I mean, I think that's why it's so important that th- every effort be made to uh, to um, discipline this person. I, I, would, I would hope that maybe they would be disbarred. I mean, this is a serious breach of trust uh, that normally if you did this to a, a client, 
boy, that's that's a major uh, disciplinary issue, uh, if not disbarment for a, for a lawyer to to violate uh, those those trusts like that. So. Um, you know, I think that, that and that is that type of language that Scalia used. That was the vibe I got. You know, when when Chief Justice Roberts was talking to clerks, he gave us a very stern discussion about how seriously we needed to take uh, court um, confidences. And so I would I would hope. And once upon a time, the legal community I think would have viewed any lawyer who did that as this is not someone I can ever trust again. Um, unfortunately. Our, our system is so polarized, and you've already got people on the left who are basically celebrating. Uh, yeah, this, throw this, this person this, a parade. This, yeah, there should be more SCOTUS leaks, is what one uh, Brian Fallon, one leader of a left-wing dark money group, would say. This is outrageous, and 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 I, you know, the person probably would get a book deal. They're probably going to get you know a seat at at, at, a, at a law school that they never could have gotten to clerk or to to teach at uh, uh, otherwise. But but hey, now they're a celebrity. Um, so. You know, I, I hope that something is able to be done to make it clear that this type of action um, is simply, you know, beyond the pale. Um, but I worry that that our our legal culture uh, isn't is is already so politicized that yeah, this is not healthy. Be, you know, people not not yeah not a healthy place. Um, that this one might be celebrated by people simply because they agree with the result um, and they're willing to say you know the ends justify basically any means. Yeah, and, and look. That's the process and procedural side of this, and I know some people have been saying, and I was actually talking to a friend about this earlier, she's like, a lot of people are saying, okay, all you people are worried about the leak, the leak, the leak, the substance is what matters, how can you even care about how this information got out, what's outrageous is they're stripping women of their rights, and so on and so forth, and I can have you respond to that in just a second, but I actually do think that the process and the procedure do matter. As a matter of principle, as a matter of how we operate as a constitutional republic in this country, the process may not be that interesting to a lot of just average people out there, but norms and institutions and processes are the whole game. And if those things break down, then we lose a lot, and we could lose the country and the republic as it exists. So I actually do think the process here matters a lot. I've made that point before. I'm going to make it again. But, Kerry, shifting to the substance – it does appear that this is a, a document that's been authenticated by the court. That's what Chief Justice Roberts said in a statement earlier. He said it may not be the final opinion. People can always change their minds or things can be altered or the, you know, a lot of different things could potentially happen up to the very last moment before it's actually published. But it seems pretty likely that this is going to be identical to or very close to the final ruling that's rendered here on this case. You've now read it. It's authored by Justice Alito. What do you make of it on the merits? And do you think the court is overreaching here or doing the right thing? On the merits, I think it's an outstanding document. I think it it really is very, it's very clear. It's straightforward. It doesn't try to be rhetorically flashy and play game. It just says it like it is. Roe versus Wade and Tim Parents versus Casey have no constitutional foundation. Therefore, they, they, they should be overturned. And then it goes through and really systematically addresses the biggest um, arguments to the contrary. Uh, people have said, well, this is, some, this is a right that somehow is, is, even if it's not word for word in the Constitution, which it clearly isn't, there's no language about abortion in the Constitution, um, that somehow it, it derives from fundamental rights that are in the American system. And so he very clearly goes through and includes a 30-page appendix 
giving lists of early American statutes outlawing abortion and how the common law treated abortion. Um, going back to the 13th century, I mean, this is this is very, very uh, treatise on the subject, basically. And then he goes through and says, okay, so Roe clearly has no basis in law. He does the work that Planned Parenthood versus Casey, by the way, refused to do. He says, hey, Planned Parenthood, which purported to uphold Roe, but really just rewrote it, but said they were upholding it, didn't even go back and analyze, is it, is it a good case in the first place? They just kind of brushed over that. So he went back and said, let's look at what, what the people are asking us to uphold here. This is constitutional garbage. This has no place in law. And then he applies the traditional stare decisis principles. These are the principles courts would normally look at to say, hey, should we apply a decision that may be wrongly decided, but, you know, water under the bridge and it's already been decided for a while, so maybe we just keep it going with it. And, you know, the court looks at how wrongly decided is it? Is this just a close case that we would have gone a different way on? But, or like this case, is this so wrong that it is just uh, outrageously devoid of constitutional merit? And that's what the court con uh, concludes. Is this something that sits well with other aspects of American law, or, or does it create conflicts with that? And so it goes through that aspect of it. And Roe, of course, does conflict with many other aspects of law. It's been hard for the lower courts to apply it even-handedly. It's created a lot of controversy in the lower courts as well, because it's not a clear decision with with a with it fits well into our legal framework. And it has caused a great deal of um, of controversy in the society. It did not, as many of its proponents hoped it would do. It didn't put this issue to rest. It actually no. caused more dissension. And so I think yes. the court now, by taking it it back, giving it back to the American people is going to take themselves out of this dissension, and then they, we, can, we can address this issue ourselves then um, by, uh, it, with our elected representatives. Do you have a sense of where the chief might be on this? Because the draft that was leaked showed a five to three vote. We know who the three are. That was extremely predictable. The other five, I think a lot of people were looking at the oral argument and came to that conclusion. And the chief justice, John Roberts, was sort of like, you know, could go either way, seem to be favorably disposed toward upholding Mississippi's law, the 15-week ban, but maybe not for going all the way on row. Does the leak change his calculus at all? Does he try to kind of split this, hair split this, even though he might be, in that case, sort of concurring in part, dissenting in part? Based on what you know about him, do you have a prediction there? Well, based on what we saw from the oral arguments and then what some of the the reporting has been, he seems to want, as you said, uphold this law but not overturn Roe. That's a decision that there's no legal way to do. That's a decision that at oral arguments, both sides said, no, you, you actually can't do that. You can't, you can't keep Roe and keep the Mississippi law. So he's going to have to invent something even weirder than calling a penalty a tax like he did in Obamacare <laughs> to make right. this happen. I don't know if he's come up with his, his theory yet, so I don't know if his concurrence would probably be a, what we call a concurrence in the judgment, gets to the same place but for different reasons. Um, I don't know if he's even figured out how he's going to write that yet. So maybe by pushing this forward, I'm, my hope is the court will then just release this decision early, not wait till June. I think the more it hangs out there, the worse the pressure on the court gets. You know, doing a lot of edits and stuff now, people are just going to be running red lines of this decision. That doesn't help the court at all. It's a great decision. Mm -hmm. Just put it out there. And you know what? If that means you have to wait for the chief to write his decision and come out another month later, whatever. That would be that would be pretty unprecedented. But, hey, leaking an opinion like this is unprecedented as well. So I don't know. I, I, I would hope that this would clarify and reading this decision itself as well would clarify for the chief. You know what? There's only one legal way out of this, and uh, you can't try to have it both ways. Um, I think that would be the best thing for the institution of the court 
And I think it would serve to further dissuade this type of political gamesmanship in the future. Carrie Severino is president of the Judicial Crisis Network. She clerked for Clarence Thomas at the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is sort of the day I think she and a lot of pro-life legal analysts have been waiting for for their entire lives. And it has kind of arrived, but not quite really yet for this very bizarre reason and this leak and the upheaval that it has created. And so it was a perfect guest to have here on the show today to put some of this into context for us. Carrie, we do appreciate your time and insights. Thanks. Have a great day. And the Guy Benson Show returns after this short break. Please stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I saw that Jeffrey Tubin over at CNN was added again. He's one of the more excitable legal analysts over there in more ways than one, actually, if we think about the now infamous Zoom call that he had with some of his colleagues. And he's back on television, back at it, not doing that, just opining in this case. And he also is extremely fanatical on the issue of abortion. And that might be because he is personally invested in the issue. Uh, He is known to have impregnated one of the daughters of a colleague at one point and then pressured that woman to have an abortion. So that's Jeffrey Tubin's background on this. And unsurprisingly, he is extremely powerfully in favor of so-called abortion rights. So it was a very bad day for him yesterday. And he is now predicting on CNN that this could telegraph or portend the fall of Obergefell, which was the same-sex marriage decision as well. And I had a number of people contacting me about that. What did I think of it? Obviously, I'm in the same-sex marriage. And I think that that is an overblown concern. Number one, I think generally abortion and gay rights are conflated too often. They are very separate issues, and people can believe very different things about them while being ideologically and intellectually consistent. And I think just sort of putting them together as a box set is a mistake. That's number one. Number two, in 2020, there was a decision on LGBT rights that expanded LGBT rights, the Bostock decision. I mentioned this last night on TV with Shannon Bream. That was a six to three ruling expanding LGBT rights It was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and authored by Justice Gorsuch, a Trump appointee. So for that reason, I'm very skeptical of this notion that because the court did something on Roe, now they're going to come after Obergefell next. I think they are very different cases under very different circumstances with very different implications if a case were to be overturned. And I think the Bostock case helps fortify the case that I'm making to pump the brakes there. That seems to me to be fear-mongering. I guess we might see at some point, but that's my response on substance to that prediction or that claim or that worry that's being stirred out there in some quarters. One more hour here on The Guy Benson Show today, Dr. Deborah Burks. She's out with a new book about COVID and her time at the White House in this pandemic. I have a lot of questions for her. We will put those questions to her in our final hour straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Guy Benson. 
It's the happy hour on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. In fact, from our broadcast location, I can literally see the Hollywood sign, which is pretty cool. Thank you for being here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and also around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That is our website. I'll be on Kennedy's show tonight on the TV side. That's in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. And this hour here on the radio is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. We encourage you to check it out. If you are 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. With me now is someone whose name we said a lot on this show for month after month after month, particularly in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House coronavirus response coordinator, also a world-renowned medical expert and author of a new book out now called Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. Dr. Burks, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. Glad to be with you. I want to just start with some big-picture questions because you were in the thick of this. And obviously, particularly in those early days, things were awfully scary and there were many unknowns out there and you and other doctors and medical experts were trying to get your arms around the problem and then convey sound medical advice to the public through the president through various media channels as you look back and as you were in the process of writing this book silent invasion what do you think in those early stages did you guys get right that was most important and what looking back retrospectively do you think you got wrong was most important? I think, right, we got a clear understanding that the country did not have the data streams and the capacity to really understand and be able to see where this virus was. And that caught us incredibly flat-footed. And even today, we don't have all the data streams up and transparently available to every American so that they can make decisions about their family of how to be safe in a time of COVID. So the number one thing was data. I think we worked hard and we worked with the private sector. Um, Every private sector that I asked for came forward with the data that I needed. And I just, I've never really been in a pandemic. I've been in many in Sub-Saharan Africa where the private sector, um, just putting everything aside, came to help us from testing and Abbott and Roche and the amazing job they did sending me data to to Cardinal and McKesson and the big distributor companies that used our data to make sure that it got to the right people. That cannot be underestimated how many lives were saved in getting the right PPE tests, therapeutics, and then vaccines to the right people. I think the thing that the country got wrong then and continues to get wrong now is understanding the value of clear common sense communication. Um, and really making sure that every American understood um, what the risk was, how to assess that risk and make sure that they were assessing it correctly and had the information that they needed, and then made sure that that translated into access um, to what they needed. And I think we are still not ensuring that rural America and in many specific urban pockets that those individuals have access to the tools and the treatments that they need today to save their lives. I think you're absolutely right about the risk assessment problem because we've seen it really in both directions, where some people 
I think, made the wrong risk assessment, for example, on the vaccines. And I'm very much in favor of letting people make decisions for themselves. We were very pro-vaccine on this show. I got vaccinated. I, my, my mother got vaccinated. I had her on the show to talk about it. I also think that we sort of overcorrected in the other direction as well, where people were in the face of a lot of data, not just in the U.S., but around the world, were insisting that kids shouldn't be in classrooms, shouldn't be in schools, should still be wearing masks in schools. And I'm just trying to understand why is it that we seem to get so polarized where risk assessment and doing that sort of thing rationally seem to be a problem sort of at both poles of the very public and often very rancorous debate. Because you're not being transparent to the American people and around the globe of who is really at risk. Um, it, that is something that I feel is personally critically important. Um, when people say today, um, it is just as wrong today to say the risk to the average American and the case fatality rate is 0.3. It is not 0.3. Um, that's an average, and it's a tyranny of averages. If you're over 70, your risk is probably 10 times that. And so for people over 70, what they have to think about is very different. If you have a child that has that just tends to get croup um, and is a bad crouper, saying that, you know, some of these variants are mild and only cause upper airway disease, you know, to a parent that has a child that develops severe croup, that is not mild. And so I just think we don't I, I've never met anyone, no matter where I've worked in the world, that can't understand fundamental data and why, why it's important and what it means to them personally. And it frustrates me when we try to dummy things down or create or give people partial information because we can't seem, seem to think that they can understand it. I'll give you one example of how crazy things got in the White House. So um, SAMHSA and the NIH were doing studies and analyzing the mental health of our children through June and July of 2020 and came out with a really terrific report on how children needed to be in school because of the not only the, the education, but the socialization and the peer support that occurs among children and that the children's mental health was deteriorating across the country. Um, they called me one day and said, the head of SAMHSA called me and said, I can't get CDC to take this guidance seriously and to integrate it into their school guidance. So I sent that to um, Bob Redfield, the head of the CDC, and I said, please have your teams look at this. I think it needs to be summarized in the introduction to the school guidance so that every parent can make decisions about what's best for their child weighing the risk of the virus against the risk of not being in school from not only education and food and all of those pieces, but the mental health of their child. They didn't. They wouldn't include it. They wouldn't include it. And when Can I just ask you, <laughs> yeah, doctor, just to jump in, I just want you to please repeat. When was that that you said that was in 2020? That those June, findings June in and that July, st- June and July of 2020. So that was very, very early in this process, and it seems like there's been sort of a deluge, if you will, of exactly that sort of analysis coming out in late 2021 and early 2022, where people were saying, oh, look at these effects on our children. Isn't this terrible? Maybe we should have known this. It sounds like you're saying we did know it very early, certainly in time to save an entire school year 
in a lot of places, but that data was just ignored. Why? You know, I think um, this is a mistake we make every day. Um, If you believe that the Republicans don't have anything important to say, you don't listen and you completely disregard all that information and the vice versa. And I saw that play out over and over again. And when I went out to the states, and it's why I started going out to the states in June and July and then forward throughout the Paul pandemic, is to learn from local leaders because they are closer to the community and they understand their community. And I learned as much from Republican governors as I did from Democratic governors. And I think the CDC decided that SAMHSA wasn't worth listening to. And I think this is how we make mistakes every day at the national level and at the local level, when we refuse to step back for a minute and say, does this person have something important to say that I can learn from? And I always learn from listening to people. And I think it it was a tragedy that, and I just want to applaud the schools that did open in the fall of 2020. I want to really applaud the universities particularly the land-grant schools who understood how important education and that peer support was and who opened and brought their students back. I was privileged to be on over 30 campuses and really see what they did. They made it through. Um, Only the North Carolina system got into trouble, Um, but the rest of the systems, I worked with all of them, and they figured a way forward, and I was there to support them and listen to them and learn from them. And I think, you know, these are the stories that really need to be told, and that's why I wrote the book. And there were political leaders as well making those decisions that were very heavily criticized at the time on schools, for example. You're going to kill a bunch of kids. That turned out not to be true, and I think they deserve credit where they got things right, but it seems like we're not really interested in a lot of credit. We're interested in blame, and that's maybe part of human nature. I do want to ask you to maybe step away from the blame a little bit. I cut a lot of slack to people whether they're in a position like yours of great authority and expertise or, you know, all the way down the line in those first days, first weeks, first months of the pandemic where we were really trying to understand a lot of things still. If you could go back, doctor, and there would be one data point, a single data point or piece of information that you wish you had known with great clarity and confidence on day one of this pandemic that you think could have been a game changer as you reflect back, what would that be? I think um, research in behavioral science and how to effectively communicate with people um, and using whatever social platforms you need to get that information out consistently. I think we have ignored um, behavioral science and research into behaviors and understanding. We never studied why 50% of the adults never took a flu vaccine. We never studied to see, is it access? Do they not have a place to go to get it? Or do they have an issue with the flu vaccine? We, I can't tell you that today because those same issues persist. And so we have not done a good job um, as a country of really understanding decision-making among the American public. And I think um, if we had, we would have been much further ahead of the game in communicating effectively to, to so, Americans. So the data that you wish you had at the beginning was not about the virus itself, but about how to communicate about the virus? <laughs> Correct. 
um, doing the background work that we should have been doing for, for decades. How do we improve the health of Americans from obesity, hypertension, um, and diabetes? Those known risk factors to poor health and certainly made them extraordinarily susceptible to the virus. We did not, as a country, and CDC specifically, wasn't held accountable for improving the overall health of the of the country and also understanding the vaccine status of adults. And that would have gone a long way. I think my number one regret is saying no repetitively in January and February because I think, you know, coming the beginning of March, we were behind. If we had known the effectiveness of cloth mask at that time and if they had been studied by the CDC, if we had had testing available, there's so many what ifs <laughs> that could be protected. Right. But I I, what I worry about is we keep turning the page too quickly and not learning from the gaps that exist today. And that's why I keep bringing up tribal, the, tr the health of our tribal nations, the health in our rural Americans. Um, a rural American does not have the same access to primary care or, frankly, the technical capacity that hospitals can deliver in urban areas. My guest is Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. Her new book is Silent Invasion. More with Dr. Burks on The Guy Benson Show after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we are joined by Dr. Deborah Burks. Let me ask you this, and I ask it from a place of respect I think it's quite clear, just in public opinion, public behavior, there are many, many Americans who really don't trust a lot of the public health experts anymore. And I think some of that is deserved. I think some of that might be unfair, but it's also a reality. And just one example would be in the last few days, you had a ballroom filled with people at the White House Correspondents Center, almost all of them not wearing masks. And many of those people in that ballroom are connected to an administration that is actively per CDC recommendation, fighting in court to have mask mandates reinstated on airplanes, for example, which have good air circulation. I think a lot of people look at that and say, these two things don't really make sense together. It feels kind of ad hoc and incoherent still. I'm just going to ignore all of it. I wonder what you think of that. Is that a fair point, a fair place for many Americans to be, or is that too cynical? Now, the reason it's a fair place is because when people put out guidance without the evidence base, can you imagine buying something on Amazon without all of the descriptors and the comparators and understanding? Right, and um, reviews. You know, to be able to make that selection. Um, yes, all those things aren't perfect, but you put all that data together and you believe you've made the best decision possible. Because data today is still being withheld from the American people, and when I mean what is happening right now showing the rate of transmission to hospitals by age group so that people know who's really at risk, that's still not visible, the decision-making behind the mask efficacy data has still not been completely transparently put up there. So mm -hmm. I can understand, Americans, the, the telling the implication that these vaccines were going to protect against infection when there was no evidence and the vaccines weren't studied for that. They were only studied to protect against severe disease and hospitalization. That's what the approvals were for. But then and there was a mismatch implied. in expectations there. <laughs> exactly. And that's what that's what fractures trust. When people can't make sense of it and it doesn't seem like it makes common sense 
and you don't provide the reasoning behind it and the evidence Bahan is able to do, end up fracturing trust with the American people. Dr. Deborah Brooks, I want to ask you about this, and I am not trying to pit you against Dr. Fauci. I do want to play a clip from Fauci recently. A judge, a federal judge in Florida, had ruled that the transportation mask mandate was not constitutional. It was thrown out. Fauci was asked about this on another network. Here was his response, cut 38. Both surprised and disappointed because those types of things really are the purview of the CDC. This is a public health issue. And for a court to come in, and if you look at the the rationale for that, it really is not particularly firm. And we are concerned about that, about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue. It should not not have been a court issue. So the issue that I have with that, doctor, is we live in a constitutional republic where we have a constitution, where we have rights, where the government can't just impose things on us at a bureaucratic level based on people's decisions, whether they're sound or not, who aren't elected. And I just wonder, without necessarily you know, getting into what you think of what Fauci said there, you're welcome to answer that if you'd like, what is the appropriate balance here in a country like ours for experts to look at data and come to conclusions and then try to enforce those conclusions as best they can in a way where there actually is still judicial review and people have rights. I just feel like a lot of folks will hear what Fauci said and recoil and say that might be what you want as an unelected public health bureaucrat, but that's also not where the authority in this country ultimately lies. What's the right balancing act on these considerations from your perspective. And, Doctor, I know that's a big question, and we're up on a break. So I'll let you think about it through the break and get your response when we return, if that's okay. Dr. Deborah Burks, my guest, her book is Silent Invasion. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles. Our guest is Dr. Deborah Burks, former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, author of the new book, Silent Invasion. And, Doctor, right before the break, I asked you this question based on a soundbite from Dr. Fauci about your approach to balancing public health guidance and interests from an expert's perspective, someone who isn't elected, and then protecting our constitutional system and individual liberties when those two things might be in tension. It's a broad challenge, but what's your response to that? So this gets back to that whole issue that I started out with, the mistakes that we keep making by not making all the information available on all the different platforms that people utilize to make decisions. And so let's be very clear about what different kinds of masks can do and where the risk actually is. And so I don't know if that was submitted to the judge for consideration, but that's what we need to do to be transparent to the American people, because people will make the right decision for them and their family if we give them enough information. And that's what makes America unbelievably great is our creativity, our innovation, our ability to understand complex things and come to correct conclusions. And so I think it's as you describe, what should be provided to every American is 
where is the risk and what is your personal risk and the people who are with you? When I was talking about croup and young people, when I'm talking about the elderly and their extraordinary risk because they don't make good immune responses to vaccines or even to this virus. So making sure that it's clear where is the risk actually the greatest? It's probably in the terminals and boarding the plane when they don't have any of the you know, when you sit there and it's 85 degrees and you know that there's no <laughs> ventilation on, that's right. the risk factor. So, you know, this is people will make the right decision for them and their families. And then what we need to do also is respect those who are wearing a mask. I have to wear a mask and I have to wear a high grade mask because I'm a care provider to my 93 year old mother and I was to my 96 year old father and I am to three grandchildren under five. That's my reality. That doesn't, that doesn't make some, it's someone else's reality. That's my personal reality. Yeah, exactly. So I know that I have this risk and there's 14 of us in this family that share that risk and no one has gotten COVID. We all work, we all work outside of the home, but we're all utilizing the tools that are available to us because we can afford them and we can utilize them. So what I know is if we make things available to the American people so that they can have what they need to protect them and their families, they will make the right decision. Two more questions. One is about your role at the White House. It must have been surreal, honestly. And I actually wrote a piece defending you. Gosh, early 2021. I don't even remember when it was. But you were such a lightning rod for criticism because there were people – because so much of this was political and got very political very quickly. There were people who were accusing you of being sort of like this sycophant or this lackey for Trump. And they're like, get her out of there. She's not really an expert. People who would have never questioned your credentials ever – but because you were their advice president they despise, that sort of rubbed off on you, and there was a lot of vitriol directed at you. And then at some point sort of the worm turned, and a lot of the incoming fire was from the other side of the political spectrum. There might have been some fair criticism when you went off to the second home right around the holidays, and people said that was hypocrisy. You can address that if you'd like to here. But – Living in that white-hot spotlight with so much political sort of ferocity injected into all of it, I just wonder what that was like and if you've sort of stopped your head from spinning yet, having lived through that. (laughs) You know, I had the advantage of working on pandemics around the globe for decades, working with presidents and prime ministers and ministries of health, you know, who didn't want to address the pandemic that they had. They wanted to address a pandemic that was kinder, gentler, or more consistent with their politics. And that's just not what you can do in a pandemic. So I'm, I wasn't surprised that things were political. I, I was surprised um, that the reporting wasn't always um, fact-based. Um, and that, um, yes, my husband and I married just before the pandemic. Our goal was to have a home where everybody could come, 
um, including, you know, had enough space. We didn't have that home. We got a second home at the beach. The people who were criticizing me were the same people who had second and third homes that they were going to every weekend. Um, I hadn't gone to the home before. This was my first visit. I wanted to make sure it was um, good and it was no one living there. No one had been in that place for almost two months. Um, and we went in a two-and-a-half-hour drive by car, no stops. I took all the food with us, and we were essentially quarantined in this home. The people that would – what hurt me about that is for anyone to think that I would put my grandchildren, my pregnant daughter who was seven months pregnant, or my mother and father at 93 and 96 at risk. Of course not. I would never do that. Um, and well, I on substance. And that's why they're not infected yet. So, everything you know, everything I that you just yeah, said, right, on substance, point after point there, that all makes sense. Knowing what we know, it's like, okay, you did actually fairly reasonable things, and you took precautions, and it was basically a quarantine. I get all of that. I guess the argument is you were urging people to limit their holiday travel. This, at least from an optics perspective, looked like maybe you weren't practicing what you preach, even though the substance that you just said still holds do you regret doing it just from the optics standpoint because it gave people that opportunity to say, aha, she doesn't even really believe this stuff? So I think what the problem is, the reason that we were telling people, and I wasn't telling people not to travel. I was telling people not to gather. And that, and we didn't gather. That was my household pod that I had been with since July, Um I did not gather outside of the household. My other daughter, who lives two minutes from me, um, was on the deck in a mask. The food was passed outside to her. So, I mean, you know, I think it wasn't the travel that was when I got on TV that I was talking about. It was the gathering, bringing households together. That's where the risk is. It doesn't um, – the virus isn't transmitted from the furniture. It's transmitted from people getting together. And maybe I was inarticulate about that. I, I really I didn't hide the fact that I was going there because I did a media hit that weekend that said across mm-hmm. the bottom, Shelbyville, Delaware. So it's not that I was trying to hide anything from the American people. What I most what I was most concerned about is if people interpret that to give them self-license or believe that I was having a double standard, I deeply regret that. And I cover that in the book, mm-hmm. but as all, I, I'm not perfect. I I just want to make it clear. I have never been perfect. I'm learning every day. I try not to make the same mistake twice. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> um, and so you never heard that issue come up again, but I think, you know, I, I learned from my experience in the White House. Um, I will value the lessons that I learned from that. Are we collectively as a society now in the endemic stage of this, and should we adjust and behave accordingly? You know, here here's the issue, um, I, I, and I am not one to just use words to give people a reason to do less, because what – I think what is really critical right now is we make sure that every American can know what's happening so that they can protect themselves and their family. I do believe we do have the tools for all of us to survive. I don't believe everybody has has access. And I think that's a tragedy. I think it has to be immediately fixed. We ought to be looking at every hospitalization and every fatality from COVID as a lesson that needs to be learned and a solution found. 
so that every single case is investigated so that we can prevent the next next case. That's what you need to do. I just don't see us doing it right now. And I think that that's a mistake. There's a way to make this into a place where Americans can not only survive, but thrive. But we're not even to a place where every American can survive. And I think that's on us as public health individuals. It's on us as um, governments to really ensure that we have in place the safety nets. I loved it when Governor Ivey explained this to me. She said, you know, I look at the whole pandemic as a creating a safety net like Swiss cheese. So you put that first Swiss cheese down, there's a lot of holes. Um, then you layer on another layer of um, tools and solutions for your people, covers up more of the holes. You add one more like vaccines and boosters, and it covers up more holes. And then when the end, <laughs> you look down and there's no more holes. I just think that's common sense. People know that during a surge in their community that they have to layer on protection if they have vulnerable family members. And finally, what I really want to say is let's – just not be worried about the acute disease. Let's make sure that we're protecting our family members from long COVID and whatever we need to do to prevent that and the cardiovascular late effects and the late brain effects. So this, I, to me, it doesn't matter if you call it pandemic or endemic. What I can tell you is 50 years later, we still have and we're still dealing with HIV, which is also an RNA virus. I wouldn't be so quick to turn the page. There's a way to make this better. We demonstrated that with HIV in Sub-Saharan Africa. There's a way to do it here in America. Lastly, and very quickly, people were infatuated when you were on TV every day with your scarves. And have you had anyone approach you about creating a Dr. Deborah Burke's line of scarves by any chance? Well, I would love to do that to recognize women in science um, because I actually, the scarves come out of a very practical solution of spending four to six weeks on the road, often in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, and taking three black dresses and 28 scarves and putting it in my little <laughs> carry-on and, and being highly successful. <laughs> Interesting. All right, that, that makes perfect sense. Dr. Deborah Burks. Former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. She's a medical expert. She's traveled the world, as we just heard. She's out with a new book, Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late. It's available now. Dr. Burks, we appreciate your time. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Great questions. Really appreciate the dialogue. Likewise, and thanks for coming on. Hopefully we'll have you back at one of these points when things calm down for you, if that ever happens. Dr. Deborah Burks on The Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour, and we will be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show from L.A., GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. That whole interview with Dr. Burke, for example, will be there along with the rest of the show. No charge on demand for you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also tonight on Kennedy, I'll be joining the great lady and her panel. That's in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern time on Fox Business Network a little bit later on tonight. So here is a story that is kind of a nightmare if you're a fan of burgers or steak. 
FoxNews.com has the write-up. A single tick bite could cause a life-threatening meat allergy for the rest of your life. This according to a report. I love this subheadline, by the way. If you find a tick on your skin, the CDC advises to remove it immediately. Oh, thanks for that. I was going to let it sort of hunker down. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you see a tick, which are disgusting, by the way. Little mini tanks of disease. You want that thing off of your dog. You want it off of you. In any case, the story begins like this. Have you ever eaten steak at dinner time and then developed hives at midnight? As tick season kicks into gear, it's a good idea to know about a potentially life-threatening food allergy called alpha-gall syndrome that may occur after certain tick bites, especially from the Lone Star tick, according to CDC. And so I guess based on this report and what they've determined is if someone is bitten by this tick in particular, especially if they're bitten multiple times, they then develop a severe allergy to red meat based on the various sort of chemicals and antibodies at play. And look, I am someone who enjoys a wide array of proteins. I love seafood. I love sushi. I like poultry, right? Pork, you go down the list. I'm generally in favor of all of it. And I think I would probably be okay going for a while without red meat. I could probably cut down on red meat a little bit, probably good for my health in general. But sometimes you just want a burger or you just want a perfectly prepared medium-rare steak. And my life would be less enjoyable if I suddenly developed this allergy based on a tick bite. And Wyatt, were you telling me that this tick has been discovered in Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area? So this is something that I actually need to worry about? Yes, Guy. This this tick has now been spotted, according to the Washington Post, in D.C. Ugh. I mean, I hate insects in general. I especially hate ticks. This is like next-level paranoia now for me because, sure, you don't want to get Lyme disease. But I want to protect my ability to eat red meat for the rest of my life. And Wyatt, you do a lot of burgers, right? This would be, I feel like, uh, massively disruptive to your diet if this were to happen to you. Yes. This, uh, I, this would be extremely hard to have to deal with. And so I think I'm going to go to the store and get, like, nice bug spray. So whenever I'm out, because it's starting to get nice here in D.C., mm-hmm. you just you never know. Does bug spray work against ticks? I don't even know. And it's a good thing that Christine, by the way, producer Christine's on vacation, because if she heard about this, I think she would immediately, like, wrap herself in cellophane. She'd become bubble boy, basically. She might not even go outside. Because she tends to perhaps overreact to things from time to time, if not all the time. Maybe if I bump into her on the street here in L.A., this is where she happens to be vacationing as well, I could just tell her about this. Hey, there's this tick that if you get bitten, you can't eat red meat for the rest of your life or you might die. Have a nice vacation. Bye-bye. That wouldn't be nice of me. Now, Dan, this could be obviously disappointing if this were to happen to you, but are you eating less meat already because of your significant other? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, so I used to love steak. I would do it probably once a week, which is kind of pretty bad for you. Um, but now my girlfriend is vegetarian, so we eat a lot less red meat, or 
I specifically eat less red meat. Um, but I got to say, I still eat red meat burgers and steak on occasion. And I think if I got bit by this tick, I might just push through and just go to the ER. Just go for it every time. Just, go, like... just go for it and have the car ready to go to the ER, and I'm going. You know? It's like, oh, it's you again. Yeah, it's steak, worth it. Steak night again, Dan? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they should become a regular at the ER. Now, you said she's a vegetarian, like full-blown vegetarian, or does she do some fish at all or any chicken, or is it no sort of no animals at all? Pescatarian, so she does eat fish, which is good. Okay. Like, what yeah. salmon fillets, trout, stuff like that. To me, that would be a lot more doable than vegetarian. And, like, vegan's not even on the menu. Like, no chance for me. None. Vegetarian would be brutal and unpleasant enough. Pescatarian, I could probably do if I needed to. I just like having a broader menu. Let's put it that way. So keep an eye out for the ticks, especially that Lone Star tick. I'm not sure if they're out here in Southern California. I'm actually going for seafood tonight anyway. In any case, back here tomorrow, one last show in L.A. from the Fox News Bureau tomorrow. We will talk to you then, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.